Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 43, 1-5 oh, Good morning, church. Morning. Let's click or open our Bibles to the 42nd Psalm. We're going to be looking at Psalm 42 and 43. Uh, the scholarship I read, there's quite a debate on this. It may not seem significant to you, but... The tendency is to believe that these were actually one piece of poetry or song written. It's been divided for various reasons, but you're going to see that there's a consistent refrain that we'll talk about in a few moments that's found in both, which leads them to believe it probably was one song. Regardless of if it's one or two, it makes the point we want to continue in our series, What a God. If you're visiting today, my name is Mark. I get to be one of the ministers here, and we're glad you're with us. You're joining us in a series that we're focusing on when life gets in the way, when we don't have control, when we're caught off guard, what are we going to hold on to? When it doesn't play out the way we think it should, what is going to be our anchor that we can set our feet on, the foundation Jesus talks about? Where are we going to find that? And we believe the answer to that question is what a God we serve, who he is what that means, and how we hold on to that. So Psalm 42 and 43 asks and answers this question. What do I hold on to when life is overwhelming? When the waves of life hit me over and over and over, where am I going to stand? What is going to get me through it when my own ability and strength can't provide that? How How do we know what this is going to be, and how do we know how we're going to act You see, I want to remind you all of something that this series is premised on. Everything in life, every single thought, every action, every behavior will find its significance or insignificance in the character of God. When we know who God is, it is the measurement of whether something has value or not. The world may tell us different, but ultimately at the end of time, The great king is going to judge the good and the bad, and it will all stand before who he is, not what we thought, not what we felt, not what people told us, right? So this series, What a God, helps remind us of what we can hold on to in the world in which we live. So I want to ask two questions this morning and then bring it to a practical conclusion. The first question is, why is life so hard? Why is life hard? A sub-question to that is, and why doesn't the church spend much time talking about it? Now, as a pastor, I have to, I'm going to confess something to you that you don't care about, but I need to get it off my chest, right? That's why you're here, is to help me with my therapy. <laughs> One of the questions I have is when preachers like me make statements, a problem with the church is, well, how many do you go to? 
Because if you've only attended one or two churches your whole life, you don't get to judge the entirety of the movement. Stay to what you know. You can say, our church doesn't do this. So what I want to say is, why haven't I preached more on this issue? I don't know if it was fear or lack of intelligence or whatever. Today, I'm going to try to remedy this. Why is life so hard and why don't we want to say that out loud? Is it a cop-out? Is it a sign of weakness? Is, you know, some of us have been taught that if you have bad times, it's because you don't have enough faith. I don't believe that because I've always felt if life is supposed to be sweet and good and everything works out, then God owes Jesus an apology. Because he had one of the worst lives ever. And yet he did it as a gift from God to us. So why is life so hard? Or as the psalmist writes, why so downcast, O my soul? Three times. He'll say this, and you're going to hear it repeatedly this morning, and I'm being repetitious with it because I want you to understand that you can read that and misread it at the same time. What does it mean to be downcast? It's actually a shepherding term, which I, I, I think is funny. No one else does, so I didn't even make a joke out of it anymore. But a downcast sheep is a sheep that's been flipped over on its back and can't turn itself over. Just picture me trying to roll off the couch on a Sunday afternoon, right? That's what you get. Stuck a couple of times, wobbling, belly exposed, right? That's what a downcast sheep is. And because sheep can't defend themselves anyway, a lamb that's on its back is vulnerable to attack. And they know it. So they squawk and squeak and try to flip themselves over and do everything they can to remedy their situation. Now, does it make more sense to you when the psalmist asks the question, why are you so upside down? Why do you feel so exposed and vulnerable? Why is life so hard? Because sin has always devastated the best of God's creation. That's its intention. It's to devastate what God gave us to be good. Sin turns into evil, and we participate in it willingly. So why are we so downcast? I don't want to say it's your fault, because that's not the answer. That's what the world says. That's why we don't say I'm depressed. We, we find different words. I'm discouraged. I'm tired. I'm cranky. There is no shame in admitting that there are things in this life that should and do depress us, make us despondent, bring despair. Church, life is hard because life is broken. And as long as people like us are in charge of life, it's not going to get better. Can I have an amen? And so if we trust in man, we fail. If we trust in God, we have what we're talking about, a God of hope. And that's what I want us to hold on to and I want us to think about. You see, some forms of depression are clearly genetic and biological. It, it is found to be true. But some of it is also, the reason we get despondent is because we're in agony over guilt and shame. We have done some things we can't even admit to ourselves we've done, nevertheless to the world. Some deal with it because they're weighed down with poverty bad relationships, addict, addictions that they cannot, they, they gave themselves to the addiction thinking they could get out anytime they wanted and we all find ourselves trapped in them, realizing we cannot escape from what we entered into. There's despondency and depression over debilitating illnesses and chronic pain. The feeling of being overwhelmed is more common than we want to admit and I will say even in our church, it's hard for people to admit, I, I can't, I'm not making it. If I can use a word picture, the waves keep hitting me and every time I try to stand up, another one just takes me deeper and deeper and the currents have got a hold of me. Now this is a happy Christmas thought, right? <laughs> Y'all came to church thinking we're going to talk angels and, and shepherds and stars. Nope, 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 nope. 
This series is intended for this season because if we pay attention, for many, many people, Christmas is one of the most depressing seasons of their life because they didn't get the Norman Rockwell family. Their family Christmas is not fun. It's not joyful. It's hard. It brings up pain. It brings up shame. It brings up hurt. I want us, this small community of people gathered in this place right now, I want you to remember where we've been in this series because it is linked together like Legos. We are building a kingdom together with these thoughts. First is you have a God who is your father. You are his daughter. You are his son. You did not earn it. He gave that to you. You have a place at his table. You are welcome in his home. He doesn't care where you've gone or what you've done. You have a father inviting you home. Second of all, you have a God you can trust. How do you know you can trust him? Because when you needed him, he created a decisive act. The reason we celebrate Christmas and Advent tonight is because God chose to send Jesus into this world to rescue us from ourselves. Thirdly, the restoration you're seeking is found in resting in God. It's not working harder or doing more. It's trusting him that he created everything and rested to show us that the world is going to go on after we are gone and we can rest in him. Yes, there's work to be done. Work is a blessing, not a curse. But rest is as much a blessing and not a curse. Look with me at the 42nd Psalm. I'm gonna say chapter 42 and make myself mad all morning. If I do, let's just move on, okay? Psalm 42, verse five, verse 11, and in the 43rd Psalm, verse five, listen to this refrain. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He's remembering better days. The author, he or she, are remembering better days. And they celebrate these days. Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throngs. He's remembering better days. I know I'm saying this kind of to be funny, but actually kind of to be truly honest about it. I remember when I was 13 and I wanted to grow up. What a fool. When I was 13, the only concern I had was if the weather was nice, are we going to be playing basketball, baseball, or football after school? And if it was raining, was I going to watch Gilligan's Island or something else? The biggest decision in my day was what cereal I ate after school. Now I'm an adult and I hear what really goes on in the, the life that my parents kept me from. All of those big discussions they were having about broken marriages around them and the church problems and everything else. And I know I had to grow, I haven't totally grown up, but I had to grow up some and I'm not impressed. How about you? Life is realistically hard. As a pastor, my phone seldom rings with good news. I seldom answer it for that reason. Because it's like, Wow. Another domino wobbling. And we all know when that domino topples, it hits others. And, and that's why we're together. Is not because we want to create a happy, clappy environment where everything's awesome and it's all about programming. No, we need each other. Because life is kicking our hind end. And it's not going to get better. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you see, we can think back to the good old days. Chances are they weren't that good. There's a reason at 13... I had issues. It's because I wanted life to be more than it was ever going to be. I had placed my hope in the wrong thing. The question is raised throughout the psalm, where is your God? 
That seems like an indictment. That's one of those statements Christians don't want to say out loud because you're afraid everyone's going to judge you and think, how dare you question God? Lightning's going to come down and take you out. Listen, if God sent lightning when we needed it, none of us would be alive. It's okay because the question, where, in your God, where is your God, may not be an indictment against God. It may actually be a clarifying question for all of us to ask. Where is your God? You see, because good people don't suffer, right? Not true. And he cries out in this psalm, he or she cries out in this psalm, God, where have you gone? Why have you forsaken me? And we think, how dare they? Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? On the cross, what did he cry out? He quoted the 22nd Psalm. He cried out, God, I need you and you're not here. I don't think Jesus cried that out because he felt that. I think he cried that out so he could answer that question. And three days later, when he walked out of the tomb, the answer was, oh, he hadn't. He was there through all of this. See, every single one of us in this room over the age of 12 and maybe some under have had moments in their life where you found yourself despondent, discouraged, and you wondered if anything was ever going to be good again. And isn't it okay and healthy to admit that? And I'm here to tell you, we've got a God who can handle that. He's not offended because God is working when we even can't see him. People with physical and childhood scars that they carry every day of their life a cancer therapy that's ongoing and doesn't look promising, the shame of having served something, hoping it would bring you life to find out it was fake and could only bring devastation, trying to keep a drowning marriage or a parenting relationship with a t- child afloat and they, the other person won't, won't try, won't give, won't repent, and we've become discouraged. So the question, why, O oh soul, are you so downcast? is not a bad question, it's a real question. And it is the the best people in the world to ask real questions should be the church. Because our hope is not built in our own strength. It is built in what a mighty God we serve. Second question I wanna ask, can joy be willed? Can you will yourself to have joy in your life? It's a big question. Because if you can't, then your conclusion must be that you must embrace despair. If you can't find the way to get yourself out of this by hoping in something bigger than you, then you have resigned yourself to say, well, preacher's right, life's hard. It's gonna be hard the rest of my life, then I'm gonna die, yay. No, that's not the gospel. To preach the gospel to yourself is ask yourself the question, can joy be willed? Can you bring it into existence by trusting in something that you can't guarantee? It's called faith. Deuteronomy 28 verse 47 is an interesting verse because God punishes a group of people for this reason. They did not serve the Lord their God joyfully and gladly. Yikes. Remember when your parents asked you to do something and you didn't want to do it and you made that crystal clear in the way you did it? God's like, really? I asked you to do this because of who I am and you did it because you had to. That's not what I asked for. Paul tells us in Romans 12, be joyful in hope. He tells us in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, Paul says, I'm telling you, find joy. So this is a, a tough passage because we believe happiness is a passive involuntary experience, right? That all of a sudden something happens in your life and you're like, yay, I'm happy. Good things happen, blessings happen. 
You're going to pull out your winter coat here in a couple of weeks and find a $5 bill you forgot about, and you're going to, I am so happy. All right, what if you pull it up and there was a bill for $5 that you owed for a year, and now it's $25? Are you, I go, I'm not happy. Well, guess what? Then you didn't control happiness. It controlled you. What are we talking about? We're talking about joy. How can a person with cancer find joy? And how can a person who makes $250,000 a year not find joy? I'm telling you, I could name you today people who have cancer who are filled with joy while being filled with cancer. And I could name for you people who are millionaires who have no hope. You see, joy can be willed. That's the answer to the question. Because when your circumstances don't change, and here's what I want you to know about the author of the 42nd and 43rd Psalm, their circumstances are not promised to change. God doesn't say to them, it's going to get better. God only says, I will be your God. So when the circumstances don't change, our hope shouldn't change. Our hope should be in what our hope should be in. So the answer to my question is yes. Joy cannot be blindly and ignorantly or falsely willed. God doesn't say act happy. God says, trust me. Let's read the 43rd Psalm, beginning in verse one. The 42nd Psalm creates the picture, life's hard. 42nd Psalm may seem interestingly to you different when you read it, but it's actually giving us something to hold on to. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. There's a turn in this song. The first two verses reiterate what he has said. Life is hard. I can't stop things. People and issues and circumstances are coming on me, and I can't turn them back. The waves keep crashing. I keep drowning, and I wonder if it's ever going to end. And he doesn't say, so I'm going to learn to swim, or I'm going to stay out of the waters. He can't control any of that. What the author says is, verse 3, God, send me what I need. Send me the light. Deliver me through your presence. And this is where, when we are depressed, despondent, and in despair, we're probably most, the most accurate rationally we'll ever be. We have seen what is happening, and we know we are not in control. And in that moment, what is our hope in? can't be in ourselves. Philippians 3.20, it says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you know, one of the things I've always wanted to teach here and continue to remind us of until you can say it for me, our heaven is not a one day self-talk place. It's not just hold on and do better because one day it's gonna get better. No, the kingdom of heaven is available today. Access it. Lean into it. Hold on to it. We find our hope in the promise of God and not a one-day promise, but a today promise. That God is doing a work even when we can't see it. So he's aware. The author is aware of what is going on. 
They have assessed the truth that life is hard and that joy can be willed to get us through those moments when the darkness comes over, in that pit of despair, in that hopeless moment. Putting our faith in God is not so God will prove himself to us. Placing our hope in God is so that we can prove ourselves to him. We can hold on to what needs to be held on to. So I took a long time to ask this. Can joy be willed? Absolutely. It's willed by knowing who God is, not knowing how strong you are. So how do we bring this all together? So the theology of life is hard, but God is good is probably pretty accurate. And putting our hope in the goodness of God, in the character of God, in the will of God is what all of us are called to do. So how do we step onto the foundation of hope? I want to show you in the psalm that there are three um, variables that play into depression, that, pray, that play into despair, that, that play into this whole concept of how did we get here? So yeah, life is hard and circumstances are overwhelming and we can't control many things that happen to us. But what do we do in the midst of all of this? And this author does something pretty phenomenal here. He shows us three things, if you, if you see them. First is isolation. What contributes to the feelings of despair we have? In verse four, it says, these things I remember, chapter, or chapter, I did it, 42nd Psalm, verse four. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy, praise among the festive throngs. What do we learn from this? There was a period of life where the author of these Psalms was in community. They were surrounded by people who had faith, people who walked toward the king, people who worshiped him and celebrated him. And when that was lost, it adds to our depression. Isolation, the counselors in the room will tell you this, isolation is one of the biggest contributors to depression. When you're alone, you only have your own thoughts, you only have your own fears, you only have that despondency that you're living in. And so I wanna tell you this, very practically for your discipleship, individual Bible study, is important. Community Bible study, sharpening one another by thoughts and arguments and conversations is as important. An individual prayer time and meditation is important. But praying in community and with one another and as families is important. They're not the same. We need both. Even in your walk of discipleship, if you are isolating yourself from community, you are hurting your heart and your development. We were not created to be independent brokers of faith. We were created to be in community together. So drawing together, as tedious as it may be, to gather together on a Sunday morning and fight traffic and come out here to the middle of the country and do all of this, yes, it's inconvenient, but trust me, if you open yourself up to it, God does something in community he does not do in the privacy of your own study. Isolation, it's not always our friend. Influences. The question, where is your God, is one of the healthiest questions found in the Psalms. Because it's not saying, where is the God? I think it's actually asking us the question, where have you placed your hope? Where have you put it? What is it in? Because for many of us, depression comes from the fact that we invested ourselves in something that proved to be a lie, a relationship, a friendship, a person, finances, a job, a title. And when those things fall away, we realize, oh my gosh, that's what I was worshiping. That's what I was serving. 
The third thing that's mentioned here in the psalm is, we'll just call it physical deprivation. All right? Look at the third verse. My tears have been my food day and night, where people say to me all day long, where is your God? There's something revealing here. It says I'm not sleeping and I'm not eating. If you've ever been in a period of depression or several periods of depression, you know you lose your appetite. Nothing good or nothing tastes good anymore. It's not worth it. It's just, and you don't sleep. You sleep and your mind's running all the time and you're not fully rested. Now, I joke about this all the time, but I think it's a principle that we need to hold to. When Elijah was complaining to God, sitting in an empty riverbed, that nobody cared about God but him, the weight of the world was on the prophet's shoulders, and God said, stop it. I have 7,000 people at my call right now waiting to go when the time is right. You're fine. But then God is good. God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go eat a lot and take a nap. Can I have an amen? In fact, as your pastor, I'm going to recommend you follow the will of God this afternoon. (laughs) Turn on an NFL game. Best way to fall asleep. All right? So in the midst of all of this, God said to Elijah, do this. And Elijah did it. And he got up and he went back to God. And God said, I want you to do that again. I want you to go eat a good meal. I want you to rest your body. Physical deprivation can separate and bring depression into deeper and deeper levels of your life. But we're not talking about eating a box of Twinkies and watching television. We're talking about feeding your body and soul what it needs because God knows what you need. It goes back to our message last week about rest. You can fight me all you want about how busy you are. That's a choice. Resting in God is a greater choice. So those are things that contribute to this. They don't cause it, but they contribute to it. So what do we do? How are we supposed to take this teaching and go forward with it? How do we overcome despair? Now, there are some depression that's medically oriented, and I'm not suggesting that happy thoughts will take away a depression of that nature. You need to see a counselor and a therapist, and we can, we can access those to you if you need that. So I'm not dismissing the importance of this, but many times the depression, despondency that we face, God is, has an answer for us. Let's begin with pour out your soul. And you're going to see my fancy wordplay in the 42nd Psalm, verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Do you see where I got it? What does it mean to pour out your soul? I have found in the three churches of my lifetime that Christians have a hard time being honest with God like he doesn't know already. You're mad at God. I'm not. You're really mad at God, aren't you? I'm not. You are. He's calling you a liar. You know you're mad at God. What am I supposed to do about it? Tell him. You think God's got this ego that the moment you tell him you're disappointed in what he's done, that he's up there going, well, get out. No. Jesus said to him, hey, can we do this cross thing differently? God's like, no, no, I need you to follow this. This is how I'm going to do it. And Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Pouring out our soul to God is healthy and necessary. Be honest with yourself and take it to God because God's a big boy. He can handle it. The fact is, he already knew it. The honesty of our soul. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. What's he saying? He's saying, I remembered better days and I was telling you about them, God. Which means today's not a good day. I wish it were like that. And God responds to it. We pour out our soul how? Praying? Sharing in community? Accountability with one another? Confession and repentance? 
These are all methods we know, but just give your soul to God. There's a movie, I won't name the movie because I'll get someone saying, well, it was R-rated, you suggested it. So there was a movie that I used to watch and there was a character in it who was a preacher and he got himself in trouble. And there's one of the most powerful scenes of prayer I've ever seen. He's up in the, Robert Duvall, he's up in the roof of this house and he's walking back and forth and he is giving God the business. I remember watching that going, wow, that's so healthy. Because at the end of it, after he's poured out his soul, he resigns himself to saying, but your God. Second thing, identify the hope you can trust. 43.5, why my soul are you downcast? Notice now when you consider that, that's not accusing God of anything. That's asking yourself a question. Why so disturbed within me? How did I get here? What am, what am I doing? What am I thinking? Why am I feeling this way? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Is this a rhetorical question? It can either be an indictment or a discovery. I'm going to say one of the ways you pour out your soul to God is you actually ask yourself the question, what have I invested my life in? What have I been trusting? Why am I so angry and so hurt and so upside down? How did I get in this condition? That self-analysis is not self-talk. That is actually asking questions that you're afraid to ask yourself. And you have therapists and Christian counselors that can walk with you and help you discover the depth of this. Relocate your hope. After Thursday night, Peter Buckland, one of our elders, came up to me in the hallway with a smile on his face and he said, if you think about it, the Hebrew word Emmanuel, which means God with us, is the word of the advent that God decided to join us since we could not join him. He joined us. Emmanuel means something to them. God with us. Relocate your hope to a God who in the advent came to be with you. Third, rehearse the loving kindness of God. This is what this psalmist is doing. He's reminding himself that in God, I have hope. Verse six, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Do you hear the tone has changed? It's not saying, why is my life such a wreck? It's saying, why am I not placing my hope in God when I'm overwhelmed? when the waves break over me. So I'm about to offer you a very practical thing that is found in scripture. It's not mandatory. And some of you will roll your eyes. Have you ever journaled? I hate journaling. I'm recommending something that is a discipline. A discipline is something I don't wanna do, but it's good for me. Journaling. I asked our staff, I put it out on a Slack channel to all of our staff. If you've journaled at all, would you give me two or good three things that you've gained good from journaling? And the answers were so different and so similar, it was stunning. The wording was different. The points were similar. This is what the church staff here at Christ Church has experienced journaling. I can articulate a moment in time when I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I actually sit down and write out my thoughts and it helps me express and understand what's going on. Secondly, it helps me focus on lessons learned. 
It, it helps me ask the question, why, my soul, are you so downcast? And the third thing was, years later or months later, I can go back and read where I was and see how God had delivered. It's not convincing yourself something happened. It's actually seeing it. I don't share this often, not because it's a big emotional thing, but I don't want to manipulate a room emotionally. But when Heather and I, our oldest son, Alex, was a twin, and we lost one of those babies during the pregnancy. And I journaled for the first time in my life during that. And then I put those journals away. That was a, that was a movie I never wanted to see again. And about five years later, on a whim, I just remembered it was five years since that happened, I pulled up the journals. I don't remember writing a single word that were in those journals. I was reminded of thoughts I had that I, I didn't remember I ever wrote. It's almost like I was reading someone else's notes. Was it great writing? Oh no. It was real, it was raw, it was questions. Five years after the fact, I looked back and I saw this little towhead kid running through our house having fun, and I realized all my despair and all my despondency. I still thought about that child that was not born that one day I'll meet, I hope. And in the midst of all of that, reading in those journals reminded me that God was faithful even when I couldn't feel him, hear him, or know he was anywhere near. He was faithful. Now, you can come up with whatever conclusions you want. I'm going to tell you, in my experience, when I journal in the hard parts of my life, I can see God looking back better than I could see him in the moment. But I know he was there. Are you with me, church? Now, for some of you, you're like, well, how do I journal? I don't know. Tell me. If you're one of those people that's really detailed, there's apps for your computer, both platforms for your phone that you can journal wherever you're at, try that. For some of you, you need to go to a bookstore and buy one of those fancy pens and those $90 journals that have the leather strap that's five, 10 feet long. And you're gonna just commit to that. God bless you. You're weird, but God bless you. For some of you, you might write it on the back of an envelope and throw it away later. Don't advise that. I don't care your methodology. Ask yourself the question, soul, how are you? and write. Some will, some won't. Those who do will find a historical record of your journey that will remind you of the faithfulness of God, and that's all I want, for us to rehearse his loving kindness. You can pour out your heart to God. You can gather in community and place your hope in the right things, and you can spend every day rehearsing the goodness of God, and you will find it every time you look. Verse five, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. Let's go back just for a second to the 42nd Psalm, first verse. As the deer pants for the water, my soul thirsts for you, my God. I'm told by hunters, I'm not one, but I've been told by hunters, the tracking of a deer is, deers don't get thirsty, deer, deers, they don't get thirsty, Easily. They're always grabbing water wherever they can and food wherever they can. They graze all day. They don't presume there'll be more tomorrow. They're always, so a thirsty deer is a deer who's been through a rough spot. A deer has been abandoned or has not been around water. And so when it says, I thirst for you, they would have known that for a deer to be thirsty would have been their number one overriding passion. Picture me hungry, right? And it says, as the deer pants for water, my soul desires you. This is how it begins. So we're gonna take a piece of bread and a little cup of juice. And before you start opening it, and remember, I can hear when you do. 
Before you start to open it, I want you to ask yourself a question this morning. Soul, how are you? And I want you to hear the words of this man on the cross who cried out, I thirst, because he was parched and desperate and paying for the sins of the world and he thirsted on our behalf so you and I could drink of living water that will never run out. And today we remind ourselves of who he is. We drink to quench the thirst of our soul. We eat to fill ourselves with the goodness of God. We remind ourselves of the sacrifice he made. As the deer pants for water, may we pant for the goodness of our God every day. Let's pray. Jesus, we receive you. We eat and drink who you are. We replenish our soul until that day. We will gather around the table and we will lift our cups to toast the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the deliverer of our souls. Father, as we ask our souls how they're doing, may they find their hope in you. Lead us well, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.